Hello, I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, episode 53, brought to you by AcmeScience.com. On this week's episode, I am joined by Colin Adams, professor at Williams College and author of many books for a discussion about zombies, calculus, how calculus can help save you from zombies, as well as, you know, some mathematics and humor and knots and, you know, various other mathematically things. But once again, we talk about zombies and calculus and how calculus can help save you from from zombies. Really, calculus will save you from zombies. Here we go. Hello and welcome to Strongly Connect Components. I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and joining me today on the show is the Thomas T. Reed Professor of Mathematics at Williams College and the author of many books, including The New Zombies and Calculus, Colin Adams. Colin, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks very much. It's fun to be here. So I, I think we should just get you know the very basic intro question out of the way first. How can calculus help you survive the zombie apocalypse? Um, so there's a lot of different ways that, that calculus can be advantageous when you're dealing with zombies. One of the ways is uh, you can model the spread of the zombie virus through the population uh, using differential equations, which come out of calculus. You can get a sense of how fast the number of zombies is going to grow and how fast the number of humans is going to drop. So that's kind of coming out of epidemiology. And it's actually very relevant today, given, given the various other diseases like Ebola that we're dealing with. So that's one of the ways that it can help. And you can use various different functions to model it including exponential functions, logistic functions, and even uh, oscillating functions where the two populations can oscillate. The number of zombies and number of humans can go up and down. Um, but uh, there's a lot of other ways that you can uh, uh, use calculus to help in fighting the zombie. So one of my favorite ways is this idea that when a zombie is chasing you, the zombie always heads towards where you are. Now, if the zombie were smart, the zombie wouldn't do that. The zombie would head toward where you're going to be. The zombie would try to cut you off. Say you're doing a straight line path towards a building, to the doors of a building, and you're trying to get there. The zombie should try to head you off, but zombies aren't that smart. Zombies always head towards where you are. And the way you say that mathematically is you say that their tangent vector, which is an arrow pointing in the direction of their motion, is always pointed straight at you. And because of that, you can actually figure out exactly what their path will be, and you can figure out what are the various speeds that you would need to be going relative to their speeds in order to make it to the doors you're trying to make it to. That's actually a huge advantage. And it's interesting because, in fact, many animals, when they're hunting, do the exact same thing. A dog that's chasing a rabbit doesn't head to where the rabbit's going to be. It always heads toward where the rabbit is at that instant. And that's hugely to the rabbit's advantage, as it turns out. Now, you can, if if you want to see nice illustrations and a good write-up of all this, you can check out my guest's uh, new book, which is Zombies and Calculus, which I, I was lucky enough to get the chance to read uh, before uh, talking to you today. And, oh, great. And I wanted to, I was really wondering, how did you come up with the idea of, of using zombies uh, as a entry point to help uh, expand and explain some of these mathematical ideas? 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, I, I, I have to be honest, I've always liked zombies, and uh, I like The Walking Dead, I like various movies of zombie movies, and I like this, this scenario of how do you survive under these circumstances, and so this is something that, you know, for fun, I like to, to think about these issues, and then I also have always really liked to think about what are some fun ways to present mathematics, because, you, know, you know, as a math professor, of course, I find mathematics beautiful, but I am fully aware that not everybody feels that way, and so the question is always, well, what could I do? that would be a way to get people to listen to the mathematics long enough to see how beautiful it really is. And this idea of juxtaposing these two words that are just so opposite, you know, so unrelated in most people's minds, zombies and calculus, once I saw those two, thought about those two words being together in a title, I just thought, okay, I've got to write a book that goes along with this. You know, how can I tie those two together? And I started thinking about all the different applications that there are and how you could fit many of those applications into this particular topic, into this question of surviving the zombie apocalypse. And so it was just a very fun idea. Um, and then I also, uh, um, sort of after I had come up with this idea, there was a book that's out there that I always thought was very funny, which is called Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, where what the author did is he took Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, which is no longer copyrighted because it's been out there for too long, and he took the literal manuscript, and then he added in zombies, and not only zombies, but he also added in ninjas, and he rewrote the book with these additional characters, these zombies and ninjas mixed in, and, and that was another example of juxtaposing two things that are just so different, and so I, I had that model to think about, and I also just had this idea of, okay, let's put these two different things together, and that's how I ended up coming up with the idea. Oh, one, one thing I found really interesting in the book, beyond just the mathematics, is that you made very sure to create a more logical and possible version of zombies uh, as opposed to the more typical they are literally the walking dead re you know, the dead re-risen and walking around why did you decide to uh, create a different type of zombie where the people were not actually dead where they you know you could kill them in anything that would actually kill a person would kill the zombie instead of just a headshot. Yeah, I, it's, it's interesting because I did make this decision to try to make it, quote unquote, in my mind at least, more realistic. I wanted it to be more based in reality, and there were several reasons for doing so, but one of the really strong reasons is that one of the models I really wanted to do is the predator-prey model. And the predator-prey model is a model where you have two populations, one of which preys on another, so you can think of like wolves and moose. And what they found, and they've, they've done you know, studies of this actually, one of the most famous ones was on Isle Royale National Park uh, up in the Great Lakes, where there was this island that had a moose population on it, and then a pair of wolves actually swam over to the island in the early 1900s, and they formed a, a wolf colony on this island that previously had no wolves on it. And of course what happened was the moose population precipitously dropped, and when the moose population dropped, then the wolves had nothing to eat, so then the wolf population dropped. So then the moose population recovered, so then the wolf population recovered, and they ended up getting into this cycle up and down, up and down the two populations that's been going on since early 1900 on that island. And this, is, uh, this can be modeled mathematically, and this is what's called the predator-prey model or a lack of Altera model of the behavior of these populations. And I wanted to be able to do that with the zombies. And so I needed the zombies to not just be walking dead. I needed the zombies that if they didn't have people to eat, they starved to death, that the population would actually drop. And with many of the models of zombies that are out there, it doesn't work that way. The zombies just continue to walk around and their body continues to decay. And it doesn't matter if they eat or not, they will survive, quote unquote, forever. And I didn't, I didn't want that to be the case. So I had to actually make a model where, where zombies could starve to death. And so 
so in the process of doing that, I just started thinking about, well, how would it really work in the real world if they're not the walking dead? Then it would be, you know, very similar to something like rabies, where this virus gets into the bloodstream, it goes up and it affects the brain. And in the model I was doing, you know, a lot of the, the higher functions of the brain are liquefied. And all you have left are these kind of pre-evolutionary early processes in the brain, things like, you know, uh, you can still eat, you can breathe, and you've just got this hunger. And those are the, the impulses that really control your behavior. And so I decided to come up with a model like that. But it's been interesting because I have gotten some a negative, not a lot, but a little bit of negative feedback from the zombie officiandos where they, I got one letter from a very angry zombie person saying, this isn't zombies, you know, zombies have to be this other model and you're not allowed to change the model. So not everybody likes the change. Well, I, I'm... I'm sad that sad that, that is happening, but I'm not surprised given how much hubbub I see on the internet when you uh, look at the various different types of zombies that float around and how angry people get in The Walking Dead versus The Night of the Living Dead zombies. Yes, no, that's right. There's all these different different kinds of zombies out there and everybody has their own favorite, you know, this is the way it's supposed to be. It's so kind of tying these, you know, kind of more offbeat ideas and you know humorous ideas interesting ideas into mathematics something you've done for quite a while and with say your mathematically bent column why uh, do you feel that it's using humor and these other ideas is a good way of communicating mathematics yeah, I, you know, I mean, I think that a lot of people are intimidated by mathematics, and, and, and rightfully so, because mathematics, it's not like you can fake it, fake your way through mathematics. You're right or you're wrong, and the kind of technical issues can be deep, and the complexity level can be high. So there are many people, uh, you know, who, who, who struggle with mathematics, and, and one of the things about mathematics is it's cumulative. If you had a, have a bad experience at one point in your mathematical career, that can put a complete stop to your ability to advance in mathematics. And so I have always felt that it's really important to try to lower that intimidation factor and to get across the love of mathematics, how beautiful it is and how much fun it is to play and work with mathematics. And so for me, there's lots of different ways that you can do that. But one of the ways I try to do that is through humor. You know, I just, I just, you know, like to write humorous math stories. You mentioned the mathematically bent column that I write for the mathematical intelligence, or which is just a humor column. And, and, and I decided to start doing math humor. Uh, I always like doing humor and I realized I can't really compete on the national humor stage but I can compete on the math humor stage because there's just not a lot of people who are doing it. And so, and so I've really had a lot of fun writing that column. And then I actually, uh, we do at the national math meetings every year, we put on uh, humorous math shows where I write scripts that are based on those pieces that I've previously written. And, and it's really a fun way to present mathematics um, and, and try to lower that intimidation factor. The other way that I do that is I, I also play characters in various talks that I give. So I have a character named Mel Slugbait. And Mel Slugbait's from Texas, and he talks with a Texas accent, and he sells real estate in hyperbolic space. And he's got a green plaid suit and a matching green plaid tie and cowboy boots, and, and he's just trying to make some money by selling real estate in hyperbolic space. But in the process of that talk, where he's, he's you know purportedly trying to just sell you some property, he really does explain how hyperbolic space works and what it's relevant to and, and gets across the ideas. And, and the ideas in hyperbolic space are really beautiful ideas. You know, it's sort of stunning mathematics. And so the hope is that people come to that talk and they're entertained long enough to then see how, how pretty this mathematics is. 
So I spent a lot of fun kind of creating these characters over the years and thinking about, you know, how could I get people to listen to this mathematics long enough for them to see how pretty it is. Uh, in the same idea, you've also done some public debates, I guess you would call them, the, the Pi-E debate, the derivative versus integral, the final smackdown, the United States of Mathematics presidential debate. How does that kind of event go? Yeah, that's a lot of fun. So I did it with my colleague in the math department here, Tom Garrity. The first one we did was the great Pi-E debate. And the first time we ever did it was for Pi Day. And Pi Day is this day where people celebrate Pi. And so it's on March 14th because Pi is 3.14 at 1.59 in the afternoon because Pi is 3.14159. And various people celebrated in various ways. And so we decided one time here at Williams that we would do a debate, you know, which is better, Pi or E. And I was defending Pi and he was defending E. And uh, we just made it very very tongue-in-cheek and silly and, and, you know, let's just have some fun with it. And we had a great time doing it and it was very fun. And so then we, you know, took that on the road and then eventually we made a DVD out of it and it was really just a fun thing to do. And I figured that was the end of it. But then uh, Tom came up with these ideas for these other debates to do. And so we did the derivative versus integral, the final smackdown. And that was a lot of fun, which is better, the derivative or the integral. You know, and the truth is anybody in mathematics knows, you know, pi has great advantages. E has great advantages. The derivative is an amazing thing. And the integral is an amazing thing. So, so it's all in fun. There really is, you know, no answer to the question, which one is better. They're both, all of these things are really amazing things, but it's just fun. And both Tom and I like to kid each other. And so, a lot of the talk is us making fun of each other and 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 that's kind of a lot of fun to do so we, we've had a lot of fun doing that have you ever just had a person run up on stage grab the mic and shout tau is the greatest and just run away <laughs> no that, that hasn't happened yet actually but uh, but we always get some funny interactions with the audience i mean you know people have amazingly strong opinions on these subjects it turns out even though we're kidding and tom and i both feel like we could switch which one we're defending and, and have just as much fun. But there are people in the audience who feel very strongly about how they feel about these or other numbers, as it turns out. When you're when you're giving these sorts of presentations, say the uh, mathematically bent theater at the joint meetings or these debates, when you're, when you're going around giving these talks, what is kind of the, because you're doing the theater to people who are at the JMM. So you're doing it to people who are mathematicians. As I imagine, you're, a lot of times you're doing this to a, a more general audience. Uh, what kind of different reactions do you get depending on the people who are in your audience? Yeah, it's very interesting because, you know, depending on what piece I or Tom and I are doing, it, it really makes a big difference who the audience is. And so for a lot of the theater that I do at the joint meetings, that is directed at people who are either PhD mathematicians or they are graduate students or at the very least they're undergraduates who are majoring in mathematics. And so there's a certain level of mathematical sophistication that we can assume. You know, they, they know the Riemann-Roch theorem. You know, they know various other facts that we can throw out and we know that the audience is going to recognize the reference. You know, they, they know uh, about Galois. They know about something this or that. On the other hand, when we do pi versus e, that's one that's general enough that we can do that for, for surprisingly general audience, for people who, you know, don't know any mathematics or know very little mathematics. You know, luckily, just about everybody's heard of pi, and most people have heard of e. And so you can do it. And, and in the process of doing that talk, we often... If the person in the audience doesn't know a lot about Piney, we're often teaching them a lot about Piney in the process of doing the talk. For more sophisticated audience, 
audiences, they're laughing at the jokes about Piney, but of course they know all the material that we're doing on Piney because it's very well known. So the Piney type thing works for a variety of different levels, whereas some of the other things really you have to assume that the audience has a certain level of sophistication for them to get the jokes. Now to spin off some of uh, this, you know, kind of more public engagement things you do to do your actual work. I, I mean, seeing as, as you like like humor, and as you said, uh, you found that competing in the uh, mathematical humor uh, area to be a bit easier than just going out to straight humor writing. Uh, is that is that why you decided to study knot theory? Because even like elementary school kids can tie knots. <laughs> I had never thought about it that way. No, I kind of uh, I kind of ended up in knot theory by default. I mean, what happened was I. I was an undergraduate, actually, and I started as a philosophy major as an undergraduate. I had no interest in math whatsoever at that time, but it was at MIT, and MIT was actually, you know, what, you know, it wasn't really about philosophy, even though the philosophy department there is quite good. I mean, I just couldn't get A's in, in philosophy because I would disagree with the professor, and if you disagree with the professor, you don't get an A anymore. <laughs> but in math, that's not an issue. In math, you're either right or you're wrong, and you can prove you're right or you're wrong, and if the professor's wrong and you're right, you can prove it, in which case you still get the A. So I kind of fell in love with mathematics because of that. And I started doing mathematics relatively late in my undergraduate career. And I just, I just thought, okay, this is great. I love this. And then I decided to go to graduate school in math, but still not sure why. I just kind of liked math. I thought, I'll keep doing it. And it wasn't until I got to graduate school in math that I was in a seminar and the professor said, I will give $5 to the first person who solves this particular problem about this knot, which was to find the hyperbolic volume of a knot. And nobody had ever found it before. And so I spent a couple months working on that problem, thinking, I'm going to get that $5. And of course, after a couple months, you start thinking, gee, it really isn't worth it anymore. And it turned out that somebody else in the seminar actually solved the problem, and he got the $5, and I was crushed because I'd wasted two months of my life on this problem. But when I saw how he had done it, I realized what I had been doing wrong, and my method could be fixed. So his method only worked on the one knot. My method could be fixed to find the hyperbolic volume of all the rest of the knots in the table. So although he got the $5, I got a PhD, and so I thought it was a good deal. <laughs> Worked out very well. So that's how I ended up getting into knot theory, through this kind of backdoor of, of this question about hyperbolic volumes. And then I just got completely fascinated by knot theory, because knot theory is just beautiful subject where, you know, you're drawing pictures of knots, you're playing with string that's tied up into knots, and you can actually rearrange it. And actually part of the research sometimes, I actually have to make a knot out of string and play with it to see what's going on. Um, so very pretty pictures, and yet there's this beautiful mathematics that underlies it. And unlike a lot of areas of math, there are these direct applications of knot theory to the real world. And so it's, it's just a beautiful area to be in. And I, I feel really lucky that I stumbled into it at, at, at a point where knot theory just exploded and lots of really interesting things have happened uh, since I got into it. What are some of those real world applications of knot theory? So there's a couple really interesting ones. So, so one of the ones that I really like is think about DNA. DNA being this long, skinny molecule, forget about the double helix for now, just think of it as a long, skinny molecule stuffed into the nucleus of a cell, and it's been described as putting 200 kilometers of fishing line in a basketball. Huge mess, all tangled up. It's not, you know, it's not rolled up in a nice way. It's all tangled up inside the nucleus of the cell. But it has to be able to do various things for life to occur. It has to be able to do transcription, recombination, and replication. And try to imagine how is a DNA molecule going to replicate itself if it's all tangled up. Then the new copy would also be all tangled up. So it has to have some way to knot and unknot itself in order to be able to separate off new copies and in order to be able to do the other things it has to do. 
So it turns out that there are these molecules inside the nucleus of our cells, and each of us and all of our nuclei, there are these molecules called enzymes that come along, take two strands of DNA, pull one right up next to the other, cut the one open, push the other strand through, and then glue the first one back together. In knot theory, we would call that a crossing change because you're changing the way those two strands are related to each other, passing the one through the other. And that's kind of a fundamental operation in knot theory, and it turns out to be that's exactly what's going on inside the nuclei of our cells all the time. So now it's turned out that they found a new chemotherapy drug called doxyrubicin that prevents that enzyme from acting and therefore prevents the defective DNA inside tumors from recreating itself. So this understanding the not theoretic properties of DNA has allowed us to actually find drugs that are useful in combating cancer. So that's a really nice application. And, and the more they understand about how the knotting occurs in long strands of DNA, the more useful that will be for us to understand how the body functions. So that's a, that's a great application. So another application that I really like is synthetic chemistry. So in, in synthetic chemistry, the goal is to create new molecules. And you can imagine a molecule that's a long molecule, and it comes around and it bites its own tail, creating a so-called cyclic molecule. Benzene is a very famous example of a cyclic molecule that forms a circle. Now imagine cutting that molecule open, tying a knot in it, and then gluing the two loose ends back together again. So now you trap the knot on that molecule. And even though it's made of the same constituent atoms bonded in exactly the same order around the molecule, it now has completely different properties than the unknotted one does. So each knot that you have in the tables of knots that we have created creates a new substance with different properties than we've ever seen before, even though we've made it out of the same constituent pieces glued in exactly the same order. And if you just look at knots of 16 or fewer crossings, we know that there's 1,700,000 different knots of 16 or fewer crossings. So if you only work with that right there from one molecule, so long as it's long enough, you could create over 1,700,000 different substances. So synthetic chemists are just salivating over this idea. It's a really exciting way to create new, new substances that will have new properties that will be very useful to us. Those are both fascinating. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, it's really cool stuff. And then it also has, you know, applications in physics where it's related to string theory, it's related to various other things. And so, you know, it's sort of a scaled down model for some of these more sophisticated, higher dimensional analogs. So it's really, uh, it really has turned into a very useful field. And it's interesting because even as late as the 1950s and 60s, we didn't know of any of this stuff. None of this stuff existed yet. And, and kind of not theory was a backwater. Now suddenly it's no longer a backwater at all. It's one of the really exciting places where research is going on. Uh, you also teach some of this and, and do research in some of this with, I believe, your undergraduates in the SMALL program, correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So we have a summer program funded by the National Science Foundation called an REU site, Research Experiences for Undergraduates, where we will bring in on the order every summer of about 30 to 40 students from both Williams and around the country and even some international students and have them work in groups of anywhere from four to eight students in a group. And they work with an individual faculty member on original research in mathematics. It's, it's a great experience for students because they can then find out while still an undergraduate, they can find out what is it like to do research in mathematics and do I want to go on and become a research mathematician. So I've been doing this for many years now and, and my group, I have them work on various aspects of knot theory. And then we've gotten some, some great results over the years. I'll tell you my, one of my favorite results, which was from two years ago, was it turns out that if you have a, you know, you can have a picture of a knot and normally when you have a picture of a knot, you draw it with crossings where two strands cross at a crossing. So two, a place where two strands cross, you call that a crossing. 
And we asked the question, what if you allow more strands to cross at each crossing? So you could have three strands crossing at a crossing, and that would be called a triple crossing projection or four strands. And we wanted to know, could you have a picture of a knot with just a single crossing where N strands cross at that crossing, but no other crossings? And moreover, it just looks like a flower. So you just have petals. So you have a bunch of petals, kind of looks like a daisy, all going into the central crossing. And so we call that a petal projection of a knot. And it turns out, we proved uh, that summer, two summers ago, that every knot has a petal picture like that, that every knot can be drawn like that. And to me, it's amazing that knot theory's been around 100 years, and nobody ever noticed this before. You know, and I, I mean, it's not surprising because it was, it was something that was difficult to prove, but it was a really cool result that you can represent knots using these petal diagrams, and then you can associate to each knot a petal number, which is the least number of petals in their petal diagram, and that's a new invariant for knots, and then you can try to understand how that behaves in, for various classes of knots. So that was really a fun thing, and I, you know, I couldn't have done it without the students. They were great. I mean, it was really, it's really fun because the students we typically get are students who are going to go on and become well-known mathematicians, and you get to work with them at a very early stage, and they're very, very talented. So it's really a lot of fun for me. Uh, staying, staying on not there, you've also written a intro not book. Uh, I believe it's actually called the not book. And you've also done a topology textbook. What is the difference for you when you write these more technical books versus when you're writing things such as Zombies and Calculus? The goal is always the same in the sense of the goal is to, to you know, to talk about really interesting, beautiful mathematics. And in the zombies and calculus, I'm doing that, but I'm couching it within the zombie story. But also in the in the knot theory book, I just thought knot theory is so cool, so pretty, so many pretty pictures. It's using such cool mathematics, and so I was just it just sort of the the, the book wrote itself in some sense because I just found that material so interesting. And in the topology book, which I wrote with a friend Bob Franzosa, we decided that normally topology is taught as a very abstract subject. It's just pure topology and both of us had seen these various applications of topology, me through knot theory, Bob through geographic information systems, and that we thought were just really cool. And there were no books that really talked about the applications of topology. And so we said, look, we've got to write this book. Here's a way to drive a topology course through the applications. And so we started working on it. And Bob had certain applications he was interested in. And I had certain applications I was interested in. And by the time we were done, suddenly we found ourselves with, with this book, which was really a lot of fun to write. Because you're thinking, you know, how can we approach this from this completely different viewpoint? And it was really fun. So, so the truth is, I'm just trying to have fun. You know, and, and when I write a book, I come up with an idea and I think, ah, oh, this would be fun to do. And then, I'm, you know, two years later, it's like, thank goodness that's done. But, <laughs> but, uh, but it's really fun coming up with the ideas. I really like that. Um, the other book, the, another book that I did was a comic book, uh, kind of at the other end of the spectrum, which was called Why Not? And not spelled K-N-O-T. And the comic book actually has an attached toy that's attached to the comic. And you do the knot theory exercises with the toy. The toy is called a tangle, which is kind of a long, slender toy that you can stick into itself so you can create knots by just making a knot and then gluing the two loose ends together by snapping it shut. That was very fun. The, the star of that comic book was a superheroine whose name is Knot Man. No pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you don't, you don't really feel that you're sort of say flexing a different like mental muscles when you're when you're writing something more technical or or is it that since you're writing all of these for more 
for consumption by other or by consumption by people learning these, it's the same. Whereas, say, if you're writing a research paper, it would be a different muscle. No, I mean, it is true, for instance, in writing the topology book and the knot book, and I, I recently finished a calculus book, that you have to be very careful technically, right? It has to be technically exactly right. It has to be correct and rigorous. And that means there's a tremendous amount of care that has to go into it. Now, when you do something, when I was doing something like zombies and calculus, it's still true you want the mathematics to be correct. But the rest of the book, you have so much more leeway. You know, you, you can go in one direction, you can go in another direction. It's not as clear what has to be the correct way to get through this material as it often is in one of these other textbooks. So in that sense, yes, it's true. And as you, as you go toward writing a research paper, of course, that's an even more extreme version of, of these textbooks, as you said, where you really have to be so careful and you want it to be correct because the last thing you want to do is publish a research paper where somebody later comes up with a counterexample to your main theorem. You know, you, that's the worst nightmare any mathematician can have. So you want to be really, really, really careful in that case. Well, I, I will be honest, I've not read my guest's uh, research papers, but if his book, Zombies and Calculus, is anything to go off of, you should go pick one up Tomorrow, they will be laugh a minute. But uh, Colin Adams, I want to thank you so much for coming on to Strongly Connect Components and talking with me today. Oh, well, thank you. It's really been a lot of fun talking to you, too. And that is all the time that we have for this episode of Strongly Connected Components. If you want to find out more about our guest today, Colin Adams, please head on over to acmescience.com and check out the post for this episode. And if you want to know more about Strongly Connected Components or Science Barring Society or Relatively Prime or any of the other shows that Acme Science produces, also go to acmescience.com or wellprime.com. The music on this episode was the song Pie by Hard and Firm off their album Horses and Grasses and Science CTN's The Ants Go Jumping, which is one of my favorite songs right now. You can find them over on SoundCloud, and I'm bouncing up and down because I love talking over it so much. As always, if you have any suggestions uh, for me of, of guests or things that you want to hear from the show or say things you don't necessarily want to hear anymore, please email me, samuel at acmescience.com. That is my personal email address. I will probably see it within seconds of it appearing because I check it constantly. Uh, and I always want it to be email from you because that is awesome. Also, don't forget, please review this show on iTunes. It will help more people find the show because the algorithm really factors in reviews, as I'm sure you've heard from every other podcast that you listen to at this point. Strongly Connected Components is, as always, produced under a Creative Commons attribution share alike license. So please feel free to remix my words and make me say all kinds of other things as long as you say that you got the original audio here at Strongly Connected Components. And of course, from Acme Science. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you come back for the next episode of Strongly Connected Components. Until then, please have a math-horrific week. 